wild world. Presented by... Do you know Raisin, the natural wine app? It's a guide to natural winemakers, bars, restaurants, and wine shops all around the world guaranteed 30% natural wine. This goes hand-in-hand with local, seasonal, and organic food. Not to mention, these are people with a locally sourced mindset. So you're going to find the best spots to eat and drink well wherever you are in the world by downloading the app at Raisin.Digital. And Disgorgeous, the only wine podcast. Disgorgeous. And this is Evan Donovan, the owner of Demimond, and I want to thank Wild World for having us as a sponsor. You can come over and check us out at 257 Verrett Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Lots of good food, great wines, great coffee. Demimondbk.com. I'm thrilled to share this panel with some other uh, influential interlocutors, and I'll have them introduce themselves. Mark? Uh, hello. Uh, I'm Marc Grandenon. I'm uh, from Paris. Um, I'm into the uh, wine, that wine movement, natural, or another name, for a very long time, the end of the 80s. And uh, for the last three years, I became a little bit an agent for, for some winemakers to, for helping them to, to export their wine to the States. I'm Alice Firing, and I write about wine. So, written several books, seven, five of them on natural wine. Uh, probably been doing it longer in the English language than just about anybody else. I live in New York, I have a tub in the kitchen, and I play the Melodeon. And you have a newsletter. And I have a newsletter, that's right, thank you, I forget, because this is the way I make my living, I always forget. I have the firing line, and you should all subscribe, it is behind a paywall. (laughs) Bill, who are you? Hello, my name is Bill Fitch, I'm a uh, sommelier. I make wine lists for restaurants, and um, I'm partners in Goat Boy, an importing company. And you're a very good thinker. Yes? Okay. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm, I'm Steve Beechner. I'm the co-owner of Light Years. We are a wine shop, uh, bar, and distributor in Houston, Texas. All right. Let's get the ball rolling. Um, so the topic of the panel is, uh, are the aesthetics and ethics of natural wine? And um, it seems like a really lofty topic, but I'd like to bring it down to earth a little bit and talk about um, some of the more practical dimensions of what we mean when we use these phrases. Um, I guess by, by ethics, I, I see two dimensions uh, that we might talk about in a compact fashion. Uh, one would be the ecological dimensions of farming responsibly, of not poisoning the earth with toxic chemicals. Uh, but there's also a, a human component, uh, which is why do we not make port in Beaujolais? Why don't we grow Portuguese grape varieties and attempt to make uh, a 22% fortified wine in Beaujolais? And Part of that is an expression of the historical practice of the region. And that's an ethical ethical practice in the sense that when you're making Beaujolais, uh, you're making a wine that emerges from a tradition, and it's it's in the end a very conservative practice, that if you're making Beaujolais and you want your wine to be called Beaujolais, you do certain things and you don't do certain things. And so you have, in a sense, an ethical responsibility to not blindly reproduce what people in the past have done, but at the same time make a wine that fits into that idiom. And that's why, except for maybe 2015, uh, we don't have uh, 22% alcohol uh, fortified sweet Beaujolais. Not to say that that wouldn't be a, a something I wouldn't... I, I would like to try that, actually. But there's, I'm very happy that we have something called Beaujolais that 
grows in a certain region and comes out, emerges from a certain sensibility that's several hundred years old. And I'm very happy we have port that also comes from its own sensibility and its own practice. And it's not to say that you can't try to make a Beaujolais-like wine in, in, in the Douro and make a light, fresh wine. At the same time, why not try your hand at making a fortified wine in Beaujolais? But at the same time, I'm, I'm really pleased that we have this differentiated wine landscape that comes from being respectful and paying attention uh, to the historical context in which we make wine. So that's two sides of the ethic question. The aesthetics question, um, maybe it's not so bifurcated. Maybe it's just like one or two things you want to say about it. But the aesthetics question is, um, on the the plane on the way here from Los Angeles, I was reading through um, some of the... A myriad of reactions that you might read uh, uh, people reacting against natural wine. And uh, I, I, I didn't have time to copy and paste into a file, but uh, and Alice can probably speak to this better than anybody in the room, but uh, there's um, quite a virulent uh, reaction against the aesthetics of natural wine. Uh, and uh, it's coming from people who feel that they um, have something to protect uh, and they want to guard it uh, and they want to defend uh, what they feel is important in wine, defend it against the, the, um, the invaders, the heathens. Uh, and uh, they, they seem to be losing. Um, and which I don't have any schadenfreude about it. I, I want people to be happy, and when they drink wine, uh, if they buy wine from me or other people, I want them to be happy. Yet, uh, natural wine has this property of making people either really happy or making them really angry. So I want to talk about that a little bit vis-a-vis the flavors of what we put in our mouth and how there are flavors that can make us happy or make us angry. So. Was that directed to me? Let's do, well, no, but let's start with you. Oh, oh. But what am I... I'm supposed to... Give me one question. All right. <laughs> Alice. Yes. <laughs> talk a little bit about your experience with people who are virulently... And you're very a good... You're a really articulate person about this. Really virulently against natural wine and, and some of the really nasty things uh, they've said. It's funny. At this moment, I can't really think of any. Doesn't everybody just love it, I, but that's not true. I am thinking about Robert Parker. Um, when, <laughs> just right on, because I always think about Robert Parker. Um, he, he has this video that I thought was really hysterical that was, I just sent to actually a New Yorker reporter where he is saying, this is your, this is your stomach on natural wine. And it was, do you remember that? This is your brain on drugs from the 60s or 70s. So this was your, and it was, look at, it's been on my, it's, it's like fuzzy and yucky. Look at all those things growing in there. And like, but that's an old statement. Uh, right now, we're, we're in a very strange position where there is a lot of, there's infighting. And there's infighting about aesthetics of natural wine that we never used to see about it. Um, back when it was in the young and, uh, the glory days, now that we've segued out from that. So some of the horrible things that are said about um, just, I mean, it's disgusting. It's apple cider, it's, it's cider, it's vinegar. Why would you do that? There's no complexity. I can't tell that there's any terroir there. Uh, there you go. I mean, it's not really terribly, not nothing anybody's going to take their gun out over. Then there are the you know, the points people who are still attached to their Napa Cabernet in a certain style, and they are just completely dismissive. Uh, It doesn't exist. It's just like it's a toy wine. But I think more problematic for me is with a new generation of natural wine drinkers, maybe three or four years into it, who are reducing natural wine to a style and a different kind of aesthetic. It's not a philosophical aesthetic the way we had for years, but now natural wine is a cloudy wine. It is a mousy wine. It is um, a fucked up wine. 
and that seems to be the motivating aesthetic that is driving a certain new drinker where I have to step back and wonder what the fuck is going on. So I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but that's what I came up with. Um, I think that talking about the first set of opposition, which is the court, Robert Parker rolls, is really important, ties back into what Lou is talking about with ethics. Because I think that the seemingly aesthetic opposition is rooted in a false ethics. Um, they're rooting it based in this notion of supporting terroir and history in the way that Lou was talking about. But I think it's really important to unpack why that's not a full history and in many cases a false history. Um, so much of what we believe to be terroir, specifically in Beaujolais, which is why much of what we know of natural wine started in Beaujolais, was rooted in this agribusiness post-World War II notion of terroir. Um, and I think we don't really speak to, I don't know, often about that. Um, and I think that, again, it's... It, we need to unpack why ethically that's potentially sincere but in bad faith because they're not really going far enough um, and deeply to understand what we're actually talking about here. I sort of have a... I'm a little confused. When, when you say that's the, the, the notion of terroir and that wines come from a place, you mean that's part of the ethical question in what sense? That like, that like in terms of ethos or in terms of... In terms of the Aristotelian notion of the etique of what uh-huh. happens... Uh-huh. Uh, uh, what the, the Greek root of ethics is, uh-huh. and okay, so right. that, that sense, uh-huh. uh, yeah. Um, and, and you think that it's basically, it's, it's, what, what, what about, what, what post-war notions of, of terroir or whatever are you, are you what do you mean? Well, well so I think it's simply um, important to challenge kind of the paradigm of the quartermaster sommeliers and kind of what they uh, understand yeah, yeah. a specific region's terroir to be. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're stripping the grapes of all their flavor via pesticides and then using selected yeast, then how actually is that the real yeah, terroir yeah. of that region? And if those folks are claiming ethically mm-hmm. as the backbone to support that notion of terroir, um, then really how is that at all ethical? I think it's also the same thing happened, or I think it's part and parcel perhaps of, you know, Emile Penot, you know, the, the sort of famous um, wine writer, the post-war wine writer who basically codified how to taste wines, where you, you, know, you look at the, you observe the color, you, you know, the, the sort of pseudo-scientific way that there's like a proper way to analyze a wine. And, and, I, and I, you know, Max Leglise, a lot of the, and, it's, and, and for many different reasons perhaps, but after World War II, there was this notion that Fr- French wine had to kind of, you know, prove its, its, its seriousness. And, and technology was becoming a much bigger part of wine production and, ke- and chemicals. Can and we not survive that? Yeah. So, sorry? Right, the invasion of chemicals changed yeah, all the po- things. A lot of these companies uh, basically yeah. were created. Chemicals always war. exist for, 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 even before the, the, before the uh, from the long, very long time. In the 16th century, we, we, we saw books. Or, oh, yeah. so we, He's got books uh, in his library that are, that are extremely technical from, from, from the 17th century. So there was, a, there was a action in wine for, forever from the Romans. So it's, I think the, the question today for the people are for or against natural wine or wine make in a different way uh, without, self, without chemicals, without, uh, without fertilizer, without the new way that they do it. I think today the problem is that we talk about Parker. The, we, we, we don't speak about the same subject. I think when we speak about what we say, classic wine, so we can say chemical wines, conventional. Or, uh, or conventional wines, we don't speak about the same subject. So, so one is, is the difference between uh, the natural movement and the conventional uh, wine, not movement because it always exists, is the way it's promoted, exists by press, by the guides, by a very long history of promotion, of guides, of, of, of uh, awards every year, and communication, and belongs to a very big company, and that is a very big influence of, to say, what, why natural wine are bad, because it's, it's go against the economy, their economy, and uh, when you have a very big, big, big groups, belongs 
very big, big domain in Bordeaux, in California, everywhere in, in, in Australia. It's, it's, a, it's an economic power. Is that economic power? It's against uh, the man. Natural wine, I think that's a part of the ethics of it, is that it's, it's sort of against the man. Like yeah, it, yeah. It's against, you know, big, big agriculture, big viticulture. It's, you know, I, and, I, and we, in some way, it, it's, it's kill, it killed the, 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 the economy, so they... And threatens the, their economy. And the consumer, the consumer for all generations, they always drink that, that type of wine. They read the same articles, same critics, say always the same things. And so they believe to it. And so they say, okay, natural wine, it's, it's, it's uh, smell like the house of a cow, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's undrinkable. And the, the biggest critic is organic wine, natural wine, don't age. That's the most stupid uh, things in the world. And so that's made for by 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 by, by um, media, by the by, by the the wine media. It, it, it's we don't speak when I, we, we say what well, if you like Bordeaux or Bourgogne. I say we don't we don't speak the same language. We don't speak about the same thing. I, I think so people, that's, that's a very big problem. I think for many people, wine. Uh, you know, there's a there's a famous uh, Adorno, Theodore Adorno quote where he's, where he's talking about commodity fetishism. And he says that, that uh, and with the commodity fetish, um, the pleasure of recognition replaces the pleasure of the thing it's, in the thing itself. And I feel like with wine in general lends itself to this sort of fetishization. And people get wrapped up in, be, in seeming sophisticated and so once they invest in it a little bit, if something threatens that, then I don't know. The words they put on them, because the language are not the same. And so it's a it's completely different, completely different uh, vision of uh, something, stay a beverage. So, I mean, I guess, how do we act to combat that same effect in the natural wine world, which I think that's what Alice was getting at, which is that it's becoming a, a fetish, it's becoming commoditized, and it's becoming ideology-rooted in not all that much to begin with. So how do we prevent the same things that ruin the conventional wine world from ruining the natural wine world? And I'm not sure anyone has a really good answer right now, but I think it's the really the, the kind of the core question in the next few years that we're going to all be dealing with. We can't. It's natural cycle of things, and it's just... It's we can't. Just that seems pain. pretty bleak, though. We no, I mean, something else will... A different will basically move to a different neighborhood. It's basically... You know, the artists move in, they make something really great, and then the people who can spend $10,000 a month for rent move in and kick the artists out, so the artists will have to go somewhere else. And I, don't, I can't think of anything that has, has defied this principle. Maybe, I mean, maybe this is the one thing that can do it. I mean, maybe. Jonathan Nasser's book is, nice. is really, that, that's what the whole proposition I'm is. I'm just basically completely and utterly negative. This is just the way I am. <laughs> I, I guess it's, I mean, to me, um, put forth best in Nasser's book, but on a smaller scale via all the people that are in this world, I think so many of us, not all, are in it because we actually believe that this may be the one place that can defy that trend. Um, and... I don't have the answer, but I think it's well, really important to seek it. And to me, the, you know, the, the critical foundation of this panel is how do we understand ethics and aesthetics in a way that tries to defy that and pushes things in a direction that may defy all the things in the last 50 years of consumerism and capitalism that have had that almost inexorable effect. You know, Mark sort of like addressed this, and the thing about the natural wine movement, it's cyclical. We, have, we did not invent it in 1979. And it's throughout centuries, ever since the Romans were actually, you know, like knocking off the wines from Vesuvius and sending them elsewhere, somebody was always trying to steal the soul of wine. And if you go back into history, you see, uh, you know, literature from medieval times um, in 1400s, 15, 16, about people being pilloried for falsifying their wine with things like arsenic and lead and really beautiful things like that. Then around Phylloxera there was it was um, the art of making an imitation wine. Um, La Tufer de Vin d'Imitation or something like that. And that was translated into five different languages. So this is nothing new. But maybe we'll maybe with social media we can fix it. 
<laughs> that, that's what Nasser's article in Newsweek that recently came out. Like, like he, Nasser was slow to come on board, but now he's gung ho. Yeah, because it's, it's, we, we spoke about aesthetics and it's politics. It's the reaction is politic. It's really the movement is at the base. It's a political reaction to some, some something uh, for the wrong. So, so, so it's direction. And there is one point. It's after the war in France. The consumption of wine was everybody drink wine. Uh, every every family drink wine. My parents drink uh, one bottle of wine per day all of their life. So the problem of today that the movement and so is the lack of consumption. So we come back to uh, we today there is less more people drink wine every day. So they drink so and the wine became expensive. So they have to make a choice. They have to make sure that the parents do it done. So that's conventional wine. Or, or, and so the new generation, politically, and realize that the conventional wine is poisoned, decide to, to, to take the other way. But it's a problem of promoting uh, uh, wine with a consumption uh, in France or in, in, in the country who drink wine, or Italy, Spain, uh, in Europe, because the rest of the world was not less concerned a bit, but I think that movement exists because of that, in, in part of it. Maybe I'm not very clear, but... Uh, no? Yeah, 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 right. right. Well, so I, I, it's a question, to be, less people drink wine, so the, 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 they're more focused on what they drink, and uh, so the, the problem is more accurate. I mean, historically, wine was a functional beverage that without wine, you would have no nutrition, you would have insufficient calories, and so as part of our everyday life, of course, the nobility did not need wine to stay alive, but most people that drank it, peasants, needed wine because it was a huge source of calories. So yes, we drink a lot less wine than we did once upon a time because we have all sorts of crap we can put in our bodies, like fast food to fulfill those needs. We can drink water also. Water? Safe water, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But before Philoxera, I think everybody could, could make their wine in the garden. Sure. And I'm sure that this wine was natural because they, they, didn't, no they didn't have available. access to anything sure. else. So it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a new way to see it today but because of that, because of, the, because of Philoxera changed everything. You mean natural wine? It's, it's just another modality of commodity fetishism, basically. And it's and, and Nasser is saying that oh, but it's also, it's also a good example. It's it, maybe it's not maybe maybe ethically it's still habitat depletion. There's all kind you know it's good for the microbes in the soil. There's all kinds of good sort of ethical things that natural wine brings to the table. But but the main thing I think he was saying is that it's it's an example that's if we're going to go forward. Um, with agriculture in general, not the way natural wine is moving, or, or the, the example the natural wine is providing, um, is really, you know, uh, you know is, is the way things, is the only way we can sort of go forward, is having like local produce, you know, local farms, smaller farms all over the place. I don't know, you, you maybe exactly more. Exactly, well, what's happening in yeah. different, different matters today, we say in French, look avant, everything come, must come from around where, where you are and, and, you, and you do what we can do, what you have around you. That, that's, that's, it, it's a part of the problem. And I, I think that the other piece of that is, again, layered on the ecological component is sincerity and good faith, things that are incredibly lacking. Bianca brought up a really interesting point in the last panel about winemakers almost feeling compelled to be dishonest to serve the market's demand for an ideological zero-zero wine, and no one can really support that result. So I think we need to move to a place where it's not simply transparency, it's industry kind of enforced reputationally, sincerity and good faith, um, which are things that are not only kind of are like lacking in the wine world right now, but in society at large. And I think these things may be romantic and idealistic, but are quite meaningful. I think that's part of the thing. It's, it's, 
for me, part of the wine in general, um, and, and natural wine specifically, is that people sort of take, take more credit. You know, there's a sort of smug ethical air to some people when they talk about it. And really it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is a commodity fetish. And, 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 and it is habitat depletion, it is monoculture. You know, the idea that it's natural, I think is, you know, it's, it's like saying your poodle is a natural dog if you feed it organic kibble. Like, it's not necessarily, um, you know, so, so, but, there, but there are ethical, there, there are ethical benefits to it. There are, and, but what are they exactly? You know, like, I think you know, it's good for the soil. There's, there's a lot of microbe, you know, millions of species that are being saved in the soil for one thing, um, but otherwise, you know, I don't know, what it, what, what's ethically good about it? Well, I, I was merely putting out these two dimensions as just a starting point, but um, again, just to reiterate what I said, is like there's ethics with a capital E, like shit, maybe we shouldn't poison the earth. Uh, with synthetic pesticides and herbicides, and maybe we shouldn't poison our brothers and sisters by putting crap into our wine. So there's that. Uh, but then there's also uh, the ethics of, of making wine in a specific region that you, it's a, it, it, you make wine in a specific idiom because it comes from a specific tradition. And do you feel an ethical obligation to make wine in a region uh, in a certain way because of the sensibility of people from that region and you, do we crave wines because of that historical elaboration why we don't have a porty wine from Beaujolais well, um, certainly a lot of people did use that argument when skin contact started proliferating that it has no um, cultural place in places like Loire which of course isn't true because things centuries ago were made with skin contact. Uh, we sort of lost that, but that had been brought up a lot about that kind. Um, to going back to the natural wine movement, it was, um, I believe, you now that carbonic maceration seems to be like this poster child, this is my carbonic macerated wine, as if this is supposed to be really great because it means it's natural. And if we go back to Chauvet, who really didn't think carbo should be on anything except gamay and granite or maybe Grenache. But yet we've lost track. So how do we go back and how are we true to traditions? I mean, when we forget them. Well, like Sauvignon Blanc in the Loire Valley, right. where if you have a very naive notion of what Sauvignon Blanc should taste like, you expect it to be grassy, full of pyrazines, piercing acidity. And, and then you taste a wine from someone like Alexander Bon, uh, where they're making Sauvignon Blanc as it was made 100 or 150 years ago, where they pick a little later, the wines go through malolactic fermentation, and they, they're not so pyrazine by um, uh, Appalachian standards, those wines are fails. Right, they're they, fail they're, they're, they're they're flawed, and they, they won't they won't pass muster. Um, it's true because the technology has come in to identify certain flavors, and then it becomes marketing, and this is what we sell, which is a whole different reality of selling wine in the past since 1965. What about the, you know, Sebastian David and the wine that was deemed kind of unsaleable um, for VA? And that, I think, speaks to their kind of like ethical disagreement with an aesthetic component of that wine. Um, I know that I, mean, I like VA in you know, proper amounts as the backbone of a wine. I, I tasted that wine with Sebastian this summer. I thought it was delicious. Um, and so, again, but, but again, the wine now ends up as actual vinegar or whatever it will be because of the Appalachian's concern on what grounds. Um, so I don't know. I think this comes back to the consumer and their aesthetics. How do we respect um, perhaps a novice consumer's aesthetics, which sometimes involve perceived you know, flaws? We talked about this in the last panel. Um, and understanding that they may like carbonic wines, they may like VA, and we can respect and carve out that category while not being dismissive of all the ethical notions of terroir and history that we talked about. So go to Mark's point, again, 
people are talking past each other, not just between conventional and natural, but within the natural wine world. And that's incredibly frustrating because there is a place for all these things, provided that we find common ground. I, I feel like that's a problem in general, and it has been before natural wine, and, and in, with aesthetics in general. Um, even like Hume talked about the, 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 the unbroachable uh, difference between, when people talk about aesthetics, between do I like it or is it good? And I, th I feel like, you know, with, with wine in general, nobody really talks about, you know, the, 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 nobody makes those distinctions. And if they're, if they're talking about is it good or not, we don't have the, we don't have the categories. Like, there was just recently, um, I don't know what you think about Jamie Good, but he just had a book come out called Flawless. And, and in the introduction, there's maybe three pages where he starts to talk about what makes wine beautiful, um, if anything. And, and, he, and he, he talks about the notion of wabi-sabi, as though it was her, his own idea, um, and, uh, which is basically a Japanese aesthetic principle about you know, uh, uh, rusticity or, or Im unpolished, imperfect beauty. And, and he makes, I think he makes, he, he, that, that kind of talk to me is, is, could be really you know, essential if we can, if we can uh, more discourse about that without it necessarily being there, there being a right answer to it or I mean it's, it's, it's patently a very subjective uh, experience to drink wine but you know and I think there is room for more discourse about about what is beautiful about it what is what, what, what is it good and if so why you know we make judgments all the time that are based on what like someone else thinks it's cool or you know we don't actually very often try to make sincerely apt judgments about wine. And I, I feel like that's a, there's, if we don't do that, then there's all kinds of problems. Like it's, it's not, we're never gonna speak the same language about it. But how do we keep natural wine from getting boring? How do we keep it from becoming routinized and becoming a shtick and keep it, and it, it's not for me to say because I'm not a vigneron, I'm not a winemaker, uh, I'm not a wine importer. Uh, I have a tiny little shit thing that I do, but it's all I get to do, so it's not for me to say, but it's a question I have, nevertheless, um, uh, where uh, we fled from conventional wine because they were, they were boring us, and they made us want to stop drinking wine entirely, and they were stealing our soul, and, uh, uh, and so we flocked to natural wines because they were exciting and they were, and they were multidimensional and they offered us pleasures that were being foreclosed by conventional wines. So now with natural wine, uh, we have, a, we have uh, with, you know, with the expansion of the number of natural winemakers and natural wines that are available to us, we have nevertheless the kind of codification of certain types of wines. And Alice was talking about carbo wines. And I'm not against carb carbonic maceration. I, I'm, I, I completely understand why you do it. And I drink plenty of carbo wines. So at the same time, uh, when I taste wines uh, from a, new, a grower that's new to me, and there's a carbo wine. So carbonic maceration is a process where you take whole clusters of grapes or whole grapes, and you put them in a vat, and you close the lid. And you either leave them alone or you pipe in carbon dioxide. Uh, and what happens in that process is the grapes under, undergo something called intracellular death. And they create alcohol all by themselves without yeast. Uh, so it's, you get to about 2 to 4% alcohol. And it's not the alcohol necessarily that's important. It's uh, these interesting fruity esters that are created without yeast. It happens inside the dying Sounds kind of sad. Uh, inside the dying grape. Um, and you have interesting acids that are produced, particularly succinic acid, uh, which is a really savory acid that isn't all fermentation, but it's really exaggerated in carbonic maceration. So all these things happen with carbonic maceration or carbo. Uh, and it's a technique that was traditional in Beaujolais and also uh, in Burgundy once upon a time. Uh, so it's not a new thing. Uh, what's new is, of course, piping in 100% CO2. It's still, the principle's the same. So uh, the, the issue that I see is if... And I, I, a couple of years ago, I had a, a, a Puselot murmured something to me quietly. We're tasting a wine, and it was not his wine. It was somebody else's wine, I won't mention. Uh, 
And the wine was cloudy because it was not racked and it wasn't filtered. And he murmured, he said, this would have been more delicious if it had been racked. And this is from the horse's mouth. And I didn't have anything to say about it because I, I hadn't tasted the wine before, but I, I was drinking it nonetheless. And that the point was, if we let natural wine slip into a series of shticks and routines where, you know, uh, if it's cloudy, it's authentic. If it don't got turbidity, it ain't got that swing. You know, you got to have turbidity. You got to have a little bit of botanomyces. Uh, you got to, you know, this and that. But a bing, but a boom, you got your natural wine. You know, so if we let it, if we let it devolve into the series of kind of routines, um, uh, what's to stop it from being becoming just as boring as the wines we fled from? I, I want interesting wines to drink, uh, and I want other people to drink interesting wines because I love wine. I, and, uh, I don't love people so much, but I love wines, and I want people to have access to interesting wines. So how do we... Uh, this is a bit of an aesthetics and an ethics question. Um, how, how, do we, how do we keep natural wine alive as it, be, as it starts to spread from our cozy little coterie and expand outwards? I think you need to just make sure that people are active participants in the discourse. They're not passive receivers of whatever the kind of current ideology or fad is. I think that we need to give drinkers a lot more credit. Uh, I see this every day. People recognize what's good wine. It's been the most encouraging thing about the past year of having this business. Um, So uh, we can't, you know believe that we are the sole gatekeepers or bestowers of this knowledge. We need to uh, respect our guests. We need to respect all of the drinkers and really encourage them in whichever way they want to be, um, to be active and sentient um, and participatory. And I think from there, the right things can and should happen. And one of the nice things about natural wine is, is, has been variety. And like we talked about on some other panel, uh, you know, the, the sort of championing of local grapes, indigenous grapes that, that were basically getting, were going extinct under the Parker regime. And uh, I feel like that's uh, encouraging variety is also, I mean, there's, who knows what's going to be, you know, every once in a while, you know, there's a new, you know, the, a new variety that gets, you know, that, that everybody loves. And I think that's, that's kind of a good thing. But, you know, b- before it was, you know, when Sideways came out, and killed Merlot um, in favor of Pinot Noir, and everyone was like, wow, finally. But in the end, like, you know, but, but it really did kind of kill Merlot. We couldn't, I couldn't sell Merlot, you know, there was a lot of bad Merlot, but there's some decent Merlot. And uh, you might disagree, but uh, I think, you know, I, I feel like that, if, that kind of, it's almost like a, like a prejudice or, you know, within the wine world, is I think the, a, a problem, like like you were saying, like it's got to be cloudy, it's got to be. I mean, maybe you weren't saying, but that voice was saying, and basically, you know, it, it, encouraging variety, it, it sort of it, it creates the possibility for changes that you can't expect that that might keep it going in a way. I don't know. That's my. You know, I'm super excited about Greek wines now because there's all kinds of grapes that I've never heard of from islands that you know, and maybe like Homer drank that, like. I think that stuff is, that's super exciting. And that, you know, anyway, yeah, variety. <laughs> Alice, do you have anything to contribute to this bitchy conversation? Uh, I, I always do, but I don't know. I'm a little bit confused about the conversation. Um, about, well, I mean, there's so many questions sort of thrown out about, we're at a crossroads of natural wine. I think there, you know, if we're going to save natural wine, uh, unfortunately, it's going to have to progress into actually some very decent places for education. And there's what natural wine has given the world is that it's going to change wine as we know it. And even uh, Master Sommelier is going to like like start falling, and they're going to have to change their education system. And whether we like it or not there needs to be something knowledge given because it's one thing to just drink wine and have fun and we all like to do that and there are always going to be people who are going to take it to the next level to the next level and those people need to know their shit 
So right now I see what we, uh, there's a lot of information being swapped on Instagram, and that is a lot of people's education, and I think that is one reason that we have this style orientation right now, where people who are disgorging their pet nuts are shamed for disgorging their pet nuts, which is ludicrous. I mean, nobody's going to tell me that Pascal Potter is not like an amazing pet nut maker, and he They're no longer natural. They're no longer natural. If you take if you right, take the no leaf, if you take natural. the yeast out, you, you violate it. Because when you do that, you have the situation that is happening in Emilia, which I hear is also happening in beer. I understand where people are faking cloudy wines because that's so easy to fake. So who's going to tell you what that? I mean, I can identify a yeasted wine as opposed to not yeasted wine, but when you're just starting out and somebody gives you a cloudy wine, you know for sure it's natural. Well, not. And so education is needed. Here you go. That's one thing. I mean, it, what, what's in, 1919, in 2019, in 2019, in 2019, um, 1990, 1990, 1990, <laughs> uh, in, in 2019, um, the contours that I see of what popularly define natural wine uh, are kind of narrowing. And so, uh, no one can drink fortified wine of any shape or form. No one can drink a wine that's over 12.5% alcohol. Uh, no one can drink a wine that has, uh, uh, that, that, that has floor unless it's from the Jirah. So there's this, in, this shrinking body of wines that are, that are acceptable. If it's not cloudy, there's something suspect about it. Um, uh, and it... There's uh, such a wide spectrum of, of winemaking styles and types that are relatively natural. Sherry, for example, that uh, you never see on a natural wine list. And it's not like this old, if only we could get people to drink more sherry. You know, it's, it's not out of that anxiety, but it's more out of, like, sherry is a valid wine style, and it is delicious, and no one ever comes into my shop uh, and asks for sherry. Almost no, no one. Uh, and it's spend time in New York. We it, like sherry here. No, and it's it's sad because I like you. You want some freaky ass wine that's gonna like blow your mind here. You know, try try this uh, this thirty thirty plus year old uh, 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 Paulo Cortado uh, um, that is relatively natural. Um, and no, so somehow that violates because it's, so it's like freaky, but not too freaky. I mean, I feel like these are just sort of cultural. This is like human. This is the way it's going to be. Like I think that it's, uh, all we can do is you know try to fight against that kind of conformity. I mean, it's it's always been a part of. Aesthetic culture, all kinds, in all kinds of places, and it does change, though. I think, I mean, in, in all kinds of aesthetic dimensions, like change happens because sh even if something's amazing, it gets boring, you know. And so people are always looking for something new. Like and that's why we, we couldn't sell Girard wines in New York for you know forever. Amazing wines, just like like Arnaud was saying, and and now you can't keep them in stock. Even in France, the Girard. Girard wine didn't exist during, 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 during years. You know, you, we have one very famous critic called Bernard Pivot. Bernard Pivot, very big fan of wine, making apostrophe, talking about wine, big friend of Henri Jaillet, and say he couldn't drink, he wrote a book about wine, and he couldn't drink Girard because for him, Girard was not a wine region. So, so, so when you say that, you say, okay, there is a lot of work to do. And that was 20, 10 years ago, so it's... The question is the evolution. When we speak about Cabo, uh, at the beginning, at the, when I, the first time I, I drink that type of wine, end of the 80s, the Cabo was everywhere. Cabo by, by the Beaujolais, Cabo was everywhere. You could drink a, a wine from Grabnon in, a, in, a, in a South Rhone, you could drink a, a wine from Daribo for North Rhone, you could drink a wine from Saint Chateau Saint Anne in Bordeaux, you, uh, you could drink a wine from uh, Alsace. You can drink a wine from Burgundy. They were all the same taste at the beginning. They were all the same taste. After one or two years, 
the taste the, 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 the became different. But at the beginning, Cabo plus uh, the frozen system really uniformized uh, in English uh, uh, the, the taste. So it was the beginning, and so and people say, okay, they're all the same taste. But it was different, and it was better, and it was digestible, and and uh, digestion was, I think, a very big point on why this wine became popular. And people say, yes, it's it's, it's made better, it's more respectful, and the, I like the taste. And and uh, at at the end, I prefer the type of wine. That was the beginning, and the reason why was people because all the people at the beginning was drinking that type of wine, came from conventional wine, and did their own way on conventional wine world, and decide that it was not their world, that they, 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 they look for, for something else, and then find it. And that was the beginning, and, uh, and they, 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 they popularized it to, to, during 10 years, everybody spit on them, and at the end, they won. To speak to your point earlier about Sherry, I think that the problem now is there's a lack of just diverse perspectives and conviction behind that in the natural wine world. Of course, it's a great thing, you know, on a large scale that so many places are opening in New York and everywhere, but if all of those places suffer from a sameness and a sameness that's driven by faddish ideology, then that's a problem and that's where it becomes boring. So I think it's creating this ecosystem where there's a diversity of perspectives coming from the right place. And that's where I think the right type of community around that is supporting it. Um, and as Bill said, this is not a, a new problem. It's not a unique problem. Um, it's just the problem right now in the wine world. I mean, it's like impressionism, impressionist painting. Like there were all once that became a thing, all kinds of lame impressionists appeared. Like all these things catch on. People, you know, there's. Sorry. And also, what is that? I mean, why is anyone shunning sherry? Really? I mean, like, what is it? I, and I know people like you know, putting wines outside of the box, but why even have that box to begin with? Let's have an open box of wines that are made, you know, the right way, that are interesting and, it's a and inspiring and exciting. It's That's subjective. There, you know, many perspectives are valuable. Like, it doesn't have to be like that. That's my problem with, I spend six months in Europe and six months in New York, and Paris thinks New York is super cool, New York thinks Paris is super cool, and after a while you get the same wines in the same, in every place. And there's a lot of wine. There's so many amazing wines now. And it's very difficult for them to break into the, you know, that, that dimension of commodity fetishism. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. We're good? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I like to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart, uh, which is um, the sort of ontology of the wine flaw. And I, I've kind of given up on using the, 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 the word flaw and taint, uh, because I think when you use these terms, you kind of want to reach for this sort of platonic notion of what makes something good and what makes something uh, flawed or tainted uh, so I just kind of give up on using those and I just use the word fucked uh, so um, is, it, is it possible for um, a natural wine to be bad is it possible for a wine to be bad and what do we mean by bad if we say something is good does that require some notion of something being bad I, mean, I, I you know where I stand on this I, I think it is possible but Asking, is it possible for milk to be spoiled? But what if what you if know? I like spoiled milk? Well, if you like spoiled milk, you're probably very. You, there's plenty for you to drink. It's fine. You know, nobody's going to stand in your way. Except uh, maybe if you just wait for it to get past the spoiled and to actually go into some cheese. other turn into cheese. <laughs> And often a, a well-made natural wine that is fucked, and if you trust it and you put it back down, maybe it'll come to its senses. Right. So, um, but there are, it is a living thing and things can go wrong. We get sick. We get cancers. These things can happen to wine, I think. So, um, however, it is... It is 
This is a philosophical question. So this is actually a beautiful question. Uh, it's up to the winemaker to decide if there are people that like it, they can drink it. I think it's really helpful if they can identify what it is in that wine that they like. It's like there's always one in a room who likes the corked wine. Have you noticed that? There's always somebody who loves the corked wine. In fact, I once really loved a corked wine because it subdued the fruit, and when I got a bottle that wasn't corked, I couldn't drink it. But that's the only time I had that one. So, but basically, I think there are parameters that we can decide that this is a wine that is not worth your selling in the shop, um, me writing about in a positive way, or you picking up as an importer, right? I think we can all agree about that. Yeah, and it's nice that there are different subjectivities. Like some people, you know, I, 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 I sort of feel like from my perspective, there are wines, like, like I can't handle mousiness. Like I just, no. I won't, I don't want to drink it. I don't feel that I should have to drink it. And, but, but some people, I guess, you know, well, A, a third of the people apparently can't even taste it because of the pH of their saliva. But apparently, I've never been to Japan, but apparently in Japan, people dig mousy wines. Was. Sorry? Before. If not so much anymore? No, no. no, no. Uh. Well, <laughs> well, wherever. Like, I, actually, I, mean, because I, I, I have not had one no. mousy wine in Copenhagen. I, or that was given to me happily. And, and it's true, I was only there for three days, but I drank a lot of wine. <laughs> and um, I think uh, the mouse in Denmark is overrated. <laughs> I mean, I, for me, it's... It's always overrated. And I think, for me, that's a bad wine, or a fucked wine. But it doesn't mean it's not going to get better. I've learned that, in fact, you but put it down and, and can evolve out of it, and it becomes incredibly delicious. But I think the ethical <laughs> thing is when there are people who are marketing the wines, who are selling the wines, just telling you, just get over it, you have to embrace the mouse. I'm like, fuck you, I'm not embracing the mouse. I'm not doing it. Yeah, no, I, I, you got to chill it down and drink it in 20 minutes. And there are some wines that actually I've gotten to that point that I will say, this is really beautiful, but drink it within, actually in two hours before the mouse comes out, it's not so bad. Yeah. But I still think, man, I'm drinking mouse. It just hurts me. But, <laughs> so it, 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 to, to me, the problem, I mean, I, I agree with that entirely. We're not supporting fucked up wines because they're in and of themselves a beautiful thing. But I had two wines today, producer I won't name, and he had to lay his wines down, excuse me, six months. And he makes a lot of wine. Um, for winemakers that can't do that, who's going to bear that economic burden along the chain to ensure yeah. that the drinker is getting the wine in the right stage? And I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think these are things, once we get a better understanding of the winemaking and of these flaws that we need to think about and not simply reduce it to this category of, like, well, it's fucked up, it's bad. I think this is really in the interest in the long term of better winemaking and better wine. And I'm sure you guys have been in this business for a long, much longer time than I have, and I'm sure that you can speak to the evolution mm -hmm. of the winemaking um, yeah, well, there are two things going on with nice. mouse now is that one, wine is getting into the bottle much quicker and sent to the market much quicker, and this was not appropriate, nor was it tolerated maybe even seven years ago. And going back to one of the original panels, like I remember Robineau, but, but I was, uh, when he started making wine and he was not, there was not, he was at the, uh, the regular the Salon de, at, um, in Loire, and you know, it was really, these were like lab experiments that he wasn't even really happy about. And now they're being marketed and they're being sold. And so I think that right now we're seeing the market will bear it so we can sell it. And this is different from 10 years ago. I don't even remember mousy wines 10 years ago. Well, it's I used to call it puppy breath. Right. I used to call that was like 10 bread. years ago, but like before yeah. that, 15? It's worse. And why is it now is also climate change is part of the problem. Um, something, uh, but whatever. But there, it's extremely complex. Right? But sometimes it goes away. I think it, it goes away a lot now. I never used to think that. I was like, no way, it never goes away. And I've since, in the last few years, like, shit goes away. <laughs> Mostly. It could take two years, though. So we need a little bit more science in the natural wine world. I, I, I've been warned to, 
toned down my rhetoric, so I, I'm not going to get into it. But um, uh, you love mouse. Pardon me. You love mouse. Uh, I oh. <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, what what is the problem? I mean, just to throw it out there, with with a pinch of sulfur. If you drink a wine with sulfur, your eyeballs come out of your head. That's the problem. Do I have to explain it to you? Yeah, so I think uh, insisting on zero, zero to me, you know, I sort of agree with what you said months ago. Like, some people want to do it, okay, and, I, and, I, and, and it can be amazing. But I, I've also had, you know, I, I also don't, there's so much more that isn't that I, I, I don't really see the problem with adding a little bit of sulfur, you know. I, and you can have mouse in wine with sulfite. Yes, you can have mouse in wine with sulfite. So, uh, so it's not, uh, mouse is not a question of zero, zero. Yes, there is a lot of sulfite wine, wine with sulfite as, as mouse. So, so it's, it's uh, not because it's mouse is zero, zero. So, so that, that's the problem. So everybody thinks if, it's mo- if it, there is mouse, it's zero, zero. It's not true. I mean, one of the things that I, I find fascinating, moving the conversation away from mouse, <laughs> is... Uh, as someone who talks to people nonstop every day about wine, um, hearing what people ask for when they ask for natural wine, uh, and what they're at, what they ask for is, do you have um, a barnyardy wine? Do you have a stinky wine? Do you have a funky wine? Uh, no one ever asks for a nail polish wine, but, it, it, but that might happen. But they, they ask for certain obvious characteristics. Uh, and, you know, as someone who's worked in the wine trade for a number of years now, I know the, what we, how we, we refer to them internally in the trade. Uh, these, so someone's asking for a barnyardy wine. They want a wine that's, that's riddled with Britannomyces. Um, if they want a, a wine that smells poopy, they want a wine that's, that's reduced. Uh, so there's any number of things uh, that, that they might point to. Um, and I feel like we're being a little disingenuous sometimes when we don't, we're not articulate about those. It's like I can't, I, I don't have time, I don't have the ability to give someone a compressed uh, uh, talk about Britannomyces and wine. I also accept that it's a nuanced thing and there's many different expressions, Brett. That said, um, uh, when you've had your 500th Bretty Turin wine, uh, you've, you've had your lifetime of Britannomyces. Uh, so I, I guess what, what I'm saying is I see um, things that are not really restricted to the natural wine world, become, like carbonic maceration, Britannomyces, uh, volatile acidity, these are not functions of natural wine per se. They exist in many other wines, um, but they become sort of associated with natural wine. And if you sell someone a, a, a wine, a natural wine that it could even be a zero zero wine that doesn't have any of those exaggerated characteristics, it might fail for them. That's my anguished cry of despair. No, uh, Bianca said something earlier. Bianca's still here? Uh, yeah. Uh, that I think is really important is that there's sort of this, like, moral, uh, m- moral flaw that if you... Uh, and she mentioned this about Puzolat, and one vintage had to use enzymes for one, one wine or not all... Some one wine, I think. Uh, I have a more specific Actually, is Zoe here? I did see Zoe in the background. No, she's not here anymore. But I remember yes, year, for years, years ago. For years, because a lot of, he wasn't the only one. For a lot of people, for several years in the natural wine movement, used lizazim instead when they stopped using sulfur and then realized that maybe they didn't want to do that. So then they started using a little bit more sulfur instead of lizazim. But, but somehow that's seen as a moral failing. And I, I, it makes yeah, me feel bad because it's easy to sit on your ass and be an armchair vigneron and say, do this, don't do this. It's another thing if your family is depending on, uh, on, on a product and it's like, oh, by the way, honey, we're only going to make a tenth of what we made this year because we, we didn't add enzymes to the wine and the wine was unusable or not drinkable. Or, uh, so, it, again, it's easy for us to, to, to make gestures in that direction. 
Uh, I remember years ago, I think you were with me on that trip when, when uh, Marc Olivier said, not happily, but he said uh, every so often he used to chaptalize. Not because he was trying to make a Parker wine, it's because the wine would have been 8.5% ABV and he was concerned that it wouldn't be microbiologically sound. So he was adding a tiny bit of sugar to bring it to 10% ABV or 11 and And so... Uh, I don't, and he wasn't happy about it. He wasn't saying, yeah, I'm really all for chapelization, but it was a practical matter. And the Net Net is a wine that is hardly spoofulated. Uh, it's, and again, it's not something he does every year. Uh, but I think um, in my mind at the time, it was like, oh, that's, that is like, is he not a natural winemaker now? Because he had to, on, on, on occasion, on a vintage, chapelize. Again, not to make a, a big, big in your face, porty type wine but just because he, he wanted something that was sellable. I, mean, I think we, can, we should agree that, on one hand, we can, it's wrong to morally condemn that for any reason, but at the same time, I think it's a beautiful thing to support the guys on the fringes, even if it's on a really small scale, that are doing something that we can all agree is radical in trying to make one in that zero-zero fashion. And as long as there's no ideology, this is probably only going to be a small component, but many of the wines that I've enjoyed most that have spoken to me and to a lot of our guests who are novices the most are wines that are made in that way. So I think if we remove that ideology, that morality, which is self-serving, it's not industry-serving, that we can support the range of, of these wines. And, and that's, yeah, that's why we're all in it, I think. Any questions from the audience? Or complaints? Pardon me? Well, I want to thank our panelists very much for this uh, conversation. I really appreciated it.